I actually haven't preached for seven weeks, um, which is the longest span that I have not preached since I started pastoral ministry. So um, all that being said, get comfortable, get laid back, because I'm going to be preaching for a while. I've got a lot of pent-up aggression going on. So it's all going to come out this morning. Um, Am I already yelling too loud? Good morning, church. So glad you're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, though, we're going to be in Hebrews. I think most of you guys know we, we're starting out in Hebrews. Um, and I'm just excited for a bunch of different reasons. But I want to plug something real quick before we get in. Have you guys seen these before? Has anyone ever seen these before? So they're ESV journaling Bibles. So this is just the book of Hebrews. Um, they're five bucks on Amazon. I totally recommend you guys get these. We're going to be walking through Hebrews for the next year or so. Um, so it's got like scripture on one side and then journaling spots on the other so you can take notes. Totally recommend these. So here's what I want to do. Since I've been gone, I feel like that absent father that needs to buy your affection back. I'm going to give some of these away, okay? So here's how I want to do this. First off, uh, is anybody's birthday today? Do we got a... What are you rolling your eyes at, Allison? Is it your birthday? Happy birthday. Come get a... AJ, come get this for your mom. Happy birthday. Oh, is your ankle hurt? That does make you walk on a hurt ankle? You're welcome. All right. Um, who has been, this is, let's just have fun with this. Don't be ashamed. Who has been a Christian the longest? AKA, where are old people at? So if you've been a Christian for longer than 30 years, I want you to stand up. Am I really loud, by the way? I feel really loud. Okay. 30 years. If you've been a Christian for longer than 35 years, stay standing. 40 years. 45 years, 50 years, all right, we're down to two, 55 years, oh, wait, wait, okay, y'all stand back up, 51 years, yeah, why don't y'all both just get one, how about that, you can't take it, I thought hand it to my wife with a spinal cord injury, that didn't work, all right, let's, let's do this, um, youth. Where are all my youth at? If you're a part of the youth group, raise your hand. All right, because y'all are crazy and rambunctious. First one to get here gets it. Chivalry is dead. Don't give me that. Look at this generation. I love it. All right, and we'll do the last one. Who has been a Christian the shortest amount of time? So we did the longest. Who is the newest Christian that we have in here? So if you've been a Christian for less than five years, stand up. Welcome to the branch. We're going to know you. All right. Less than four years. Three. Two. One. Nine months. Six months. All right, you're the winner. I can't walk in front of that. Gaines, what's up, man? I didn't see you with a mask. It's good to see you. All right, now that's all that's over, let's start preaching. Hebrews 1. 
again, I totally recommend you getting one of those. Just a great resource to go through. But, but as we get into Hebrews, there, there's a lot that we're going to have to do this first week just to kind of open the bar for Hebrews. Like I said, we're going to be here for the next year, year and a half. I can't remember how long. Um, so, so we want to lay a firm foundation for the book of Hebrews. So just curious, has anyone read through the book of Hebrews, all 13 chapters? Is anybody, is Hebrews their favorite book of the Bible? All right, so yeah, Hebrews is just awesome. And so this morning, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 3, um, which most scholars and theologians would say is the most theological, robust, and eloquent verses in the entirety of the Scripture. So what we're just going to read this morning is the most theologically robust and eloquently spoken verses in all of Scripture, which is just magnificent to look at. So next to Romans, if you've read Romans, um, Hebrews is probably second to the depth of theological truths that we'll get into. Uh, but most importantly, what we're going to see over this next year, year and a half, is just this idea of Christology. Has anyone under, ever heard of Christology? So, so who is Christ? And so there's this, uh, there's this situation with Jesus and disciples where he's saying, who, who do people say that I am? And so Hebrews is going to force us into having a face-to-face -face interaction with Jesus, answering that question. Who do we think Jesus is? Who do we think the Christ is? So as we get started, let me answer maybe some of the questions that we have about the book of Hebrews. And, and we've known we're going to be preaching through Hebrews for about... I don't know, six, nine months, maybe even longer. And, and this first question I had that I was going to answer, I was going to do the study, I was going to do the research, and this was going to be like news breaking, you welcome to the branch, I'm going to give you something no one else knows. And I'm sad to disappoint, I, I cannot answer this question. Who actually wrote the book of Hebrews? And I was going to solve it. I was going to, I was going to figure it out. That's how I was going to retire and make millions is answering this one question, who wrote the book of Hebrews? And I just, I just can't. There's one old scholar that says, well, basically we'll find out when we die. That only God knows who the true author of Hebrews is. There's a lot of theories. Um, some would say Paul. Some would say Apollos. Uh, some would say Barnabas. Um, some would say, uh, there's one more that I'm forgetting, uh, Luke. Uh, which is probably, if, if I'm just all cards on the table, I think I would lean a little bit more towards Luke, maybe even Apollos. But, but here's what we do know about this man. Um, he was incredibly brilliant, incredibly brilliant. The way that he connected the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, the arguments, the rhetorics that he made, the eloquent speech that he used was just brilliant. So whoever is this author was just a brilliant man of God. And then next we have to look at the style because the style really doesn't fit into any other framework we have. Um, so it says Hebrews, and we see all the other epistles, which would be just letters to the church at Corinth or letters to the church at Ephesus. Um, we see those and go, okay, is Hebrews in, in, in a form of an epistle? And the answer is yes. You, you could change the title to, to the Hebrews. Right, So this is a letter written, but it's not really a letter as much as a sermon. And we're going to see a lot of that as time goes on. Because we don't see the introduction from a letter, and we don't see the conclusion of a letter. This is a sermon. So one scholar said that this is intended to hear with our ears, not read with our eyes. So this was something that was sent to a house church, which I'll get to in a second. And they read out loud together as a sermon. 
So even though it is an epistle, we got to see it and view this as a sermon. Now, who was it written to? This is probably the most agreed upon part of the book of Hebrews. It was written to a house church within Rome. A house church within Rome. Now, if, if you know anything about history, Rome during this era, which we'll get to the date in a second, um, was just not Christian friendly. So these were converted Jews, so people that grew up in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish faith. They had seen Christ, Christ die on the cross, not physically with their eyes, but they had heard that, and they've converted from Judaism to Christianity. So they were still rooted deeply in their Jewish traditions, but these were Christians now. They were following after Christ. And so Jews in Rome did not have a good reputation. We'd actually see AD 70, Rome destroys the Jewish temple, but then Jewish Christians within Rome was even worse than that. So there was open persecution, there was open shame, open stealing their property. Um, the date really matters here, um, but, but most scholars would agree there hasn't yet been persecution, um, but Nero's coming. Does anybody know who Nero is? The emperor that would light the streets of Rome with burning Christians. Right? Like, like this is that man. So, so we would all kind of see that early in AD 60s, probably when this took place, because by AD 64, Nero was openly murdering and martyring Christians in Rome. So we see this big wave of persecution from Claudius in AD 50 when he pushes all of the Jews out of Rome. And then this AD 64 um, is when Nero really starts to ramp up the martyrdom. So the Hebrew, this book of Hebrews was written somewhere in that. So in, in between these two waves of persecution. And so William Lane, who's a New Testament scholar, put it this way. Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians whose world was falling apart. Their Christianity had not been a worldly advantage, rather it set them up for persecution and the loss of property and privilege, and now could even possibly cost them their lives. So we see that the newness of Christianity has worn off. The excitement of Christianity is now gone, and persecution is slapping them in the face. That they were embarrassed to go out in public because of what it would look like. That, that they were having to meet in homes. They couldn't meet in public spaces because of the persecution that would fall upon them. And they saw where the trend was going. That if they were going to keep up their Christian faith, then death was looming in the horizon. This is the setting of the book of Hebrews. We have to wrap our minds around. And in a small, minuscule way... We kind of might understand some of this, right? I mean, raise your hand if you ever went to that youth group camp or fall retreat and you just came back on fire for Jesus and then three weeks later you're drinking at a party again, right? Just me? Okay, like, that, that's us, right? We all go get on fire for Jesus and then we come back and life gets back to normal. And, and so the, the writer of Hebrews was preaching this sermon, pleading with them, don't fall back into your normal ways. Things are hard, life is hard, but Christ is worth it. And again, we've, we picked Hebrews a long time ago, but, but this is a timely message for us because for most of us, 2020 is just awful. I mean, anyone else? My wife and I had kind of uh, not really boasted, we were not intending to boast, but we had just remarked that, man, 2020 hasn't really affected us like it has most of our friends, that we haven't really had a hard season of life yet. We're just really blessed. And I think we said that one too many times and God said, okay. But even, I mean, guys, even this week, 
I've had to talk to two pastor friends of mine. One lost his 38-year-old executive pastor to a heart attack in his front yard. And one, they lost a two-month-old baby in their church, and he had to preach a funeral yesterday. Now, we can all just kind of sit in the weight of this and understand that there's times where we feel like throwing in the towel. I mean, there's times where we look at the world around us and are so dumbfounded about how God could let this happen. Where is God? Where is the silence of God? Why are we going through this? That there's just that thought that if we're honest, kind of rolls in the back of our mind sometimes. It goes, what are we even doing here? Like, is, is it even worth it to be a Christian? Is it even worth it to gather together on the Lord's day like this? Is it even worth it to follow and pursue Christ? So these are the thoughts that the Hebrews were having because life was really hard for them. And so this sermon is intended to go, no, no, no. Christ is worth it. Christ is enough. So with all that being said, let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let us pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can gather together, we can study it, that we can remember it, and that you can speak to us. Father, we pray this morning that we'd have a clear understanding of this book in general but who Christ is and what he's done for us and what he's doing for us. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to meet in a space like this. The freedoms that we have to study your word, the lack of persecution for the church that's around us. God, forgive us for taking all those things for granted. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So as we get started, let me just kind of maybe swing the pendulum back real quick, real quick and just give two quick reminders. First, remember I said earlier, this is the most eloquent paragraph in all of the Bible. And I'm not going to do it justice, okay? I'm, I'm more fluent in North Georgia redneck, not Greek, right? So I'm going to do my best on this, but we'll see what we can do. The second thing is this. This is a sermon introduction, this is a sermon introduction. So college students, you just went to class or went online or whatever you did. And sometime in the past, you've gone and you've read through the syllabus with the professor. And in that first little bit, he said, this is all, or she said, this is all that we're going to cover this semester. In the same way, this, this preacher here is saying, this is what we're going to cover. So if I exhaustively covered everything that we're about to read, then we wouldn't have to go through the rest of the book of Hebrews. 
So this morning is kind of an overarching theme to get our minds right on what the author is trying to say. So I just want to make two quick observations, and then we're going to look quickly at seven attributes of who Jesus is in this passage that's going to set up really the rest of the book of Hebrews. So we understand where the Hebrews are, what they're going through, the house church in Rome that are just disparaged and they're going through really hard times at their wit's end. So let's first look at one observation that the preacher says, that God has and is working his plan for his own glory. So we see in verse one, long ago, and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So simply put, God had a plan when he was speaking through his prophets. God had a plan when he was speaking through his son, and God has a plan as he's speaking through your suffering. So the the author here, the the preacher here, I'm just gonna keep referring to him as the preacher because we don't know who he is. I think it's Luke, but we don't know who he is. So I'm just gonna keep saying the preacher. The preacher is going, look, look, right out of the gate, I want you to know long ago God had a plan, Through Christ, God had a plan, and right now, God has a plan. But these were Jewish Christians. They they knew the history of what this preacher just said. They would know that the prophets were not received very well, right? I mean, not many prophets can walk into a place and go, hey, you need to turn, you need to repent, or you're gonna die. Oh, great, man, you'll go grab some lunch? Thanks for that message. If you read any of the prophets in the Old Testament, and we'll get to them in Hebrews 11, they were sawn in two, they were murdered, they were not received very well. So long ago, in the suffering and the persecution and the prophets, God had a plan. And then just 60 years ago, when Christ was born, and 30 years ago, when he was murdered, God had a plan. So Hebrews, living in Rome, this house church gathered together at your wit's end. In your suffering, I have a plan. Now, they had two choices. Do I believe that or do I not? Do I believe that the prophet's suffering was part of God's plan? Do I believe that, that Christ's death on the cross was part of God's plan? And do I believe that my suffering and my ultimate demise and death is part of God's plan. And I really think, and maybe I'm projecting on you, but that's okay. I really think we need to press in here because here's what God just said. Do not confuse your suffering to be an absence of my presence. Did y'all catch that? Church, do not confuse your suffering to be an absence of my presence. Instead, look at the prophets and look at Christ and know that I'm most prevalent in your life, in your suffering. Okay, that side of the room didn't give me anything. Let me come over here. Don't think that God's absence in your suffering is because he's not good. That God is most alive in us, in our suffering. Now listen, most of us in our Christian journey were not told that to become a Christian. Here's the, what we were told. Just follow Christ. This, everything's going to be perfect for you. You want to go to heaven, right? I mean, if you follow Jesus, if you become a Christian right now, we'll baptize you and the rest of your life is going to be incredible. It's going to be little pony and rainbows and awesomeness. Did anybody see the rainbow yesterday? 
was legit. But, but that's the lie that we believe so that we get into Christianity and we go, man, this is really hard. Why would God let me go through this? But we need to see what the preacher is saying, that long ago, even in the prophet's suffering, I was pointing towards Jesus. And in Christ's suffering, I was purchasing forgiveness for your sins. And in your suffering in this moment, house church in Rome, there's a purpose to your suffering. Hold on, keep going, keep running. And I could spend a lot of time here, and I think this has just kind of been a theme that we've seen, lean with it, over the last four, or over the last book of Psalms. But let me just draw four quick conclusions for suffering. Suffering and hardship and persecution teaches us four things, just real quick. One, that we live in a fallen, sinful world. There's sometimes that suffering happens just because of sin. We just live in a sinful world. Romans 5.12 would say, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all of man because all have sinned. So there's sometimes that it's not God, it's sin. But there's sometimes God brings us to that. We see it clearly in Genesis 50. The second thing we need to understand about suffering is we suffer because God uses it to produce good in us. James 1, 2 through 4 puts it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For he knows that the testing of your faith produces steadfast, and steadfast has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is saying your suffering Your persecution, what you're going through right now is making you a better version of you. And that's what Christ is doing. That is sanctification. Suffering prepares us on how God will use us. We see Paul sitting in the jail, writing to the church at Philippi, going, I want you to know, brothers, in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me is actually serving to advance the gospel, that I'm winning all these guards in this prison towards Christ. And in that moment, Paul had two choices. He could sit there and wallow in his self-pity, or he could preach the gospel to all that would listen. He's going, look, I I know I'm in a bad spot right here, but this is happening, and God's getting his glory through this. But, But maybe most importantly, and maybe this just hit me the hardest, that our suffering ultimately proves to us that this world is not our final home. That the scripture calls us aliens and sojourners, that that we're just passing through. And suffering is going to produce in us a desire and a hope for our future everlasting home. 2 Corinthians 4 puts it this way. So we do not lose heart, although our outer self is wasting our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So this suffering reminds us that our bodies will be made perfect one day. That this suffering will end one day when we're in the presence of Jesus forever. So don't get too comfortable here, church. Don't put all your hope in this present time, church. The suffering is pushing us, it's pointing us to eternal glory with him. 
So straight out of the gate, we see the preacher saying, look, look, I had a plan in the prophet's suffering. I had the plan in the son's suffering. And I have a plan in your suffering. We were probably three days into my wife's injury in Panama City, and and I called my dad. And if if you know my family, my dad's an elder here. um, I'm more like my mom, where if you ask us for advice, we're just going to talk to you for 30 minutes, and you go, oh, that was really good. And you go, oftentimes I say, what part? Because I don't know what I said. I just rambled for a while. I hope that's more of the shotgun approach. Uh, My dad is more of the sniper approach. He's more of the calm, quiet. But when he speaks, it's like, oh, that was good. In, in most of my adolescent life, I didn't like his advice, but now as I'm getting older and mature and he's getting a little older and more delusional, I like his advice a lot more. But I called him, I said, Dad, I, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. I can't talk to my wife. I'm stuck here in Florida. I don't know what to tell the kids. I, I don't know if she'll walk again unassisted. I, I don't know if I send the kids to school. I don't know if I need to be looking on Craigslist for a handicapped van, Dad. I'm just at my wit's end. And my dad just very eloquently said, you're at the end of your rope, but son, you need to tie a knot because God's got this. And just hold on. And you can hear the preacher's tone in this. Church in Rome to the Hebrews, you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot, and hold on, because God's got this. So in our suffering, what is our approach? What is our view of God in that moment? And the church at Rome had two choices. They could go back to their old ways. They could succumb to the pressures of Rome and just go, okay, forget it, I'm I'm not a Christian. I'm not even a Jew anymore. Accept me as a Roman citizen. I'm, I'm just gonna be one of you guys. Or they could hold fast to Christ. In church, in the same way, in our suffering, we have only but two options. We can throw in the towel, which we'll see often in Hebrews, or we can tie a knot, we can hold on and trust that God's got this. So first we see just the, the idea of suffering through the prophets and through Christ. But next that we see the preacher wanted them to know that God speaks directly to us, that even in our suffering, God is speaking directly to us. And and here's what he says. Look at verse one again. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So if you're an underliner, if you're a note taker, there's just a few phrases I want you to see in this eloquent first paragraph. In many times and in many ways, In many times, in many ways, and then underline spoke, that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, this is something that that maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, we almost take advantage of. We almost forget the goodness of this. That our God has spoken to us. Dr. Moeller at Southern Seminary puts it this way, that one of the most important assertions by the author of Hebrews in these initial verses is that God is a speaking God. We see the grace of God in salvation, that he has so lovingly saved our souls when we didn't deserve it. But do we see the grace of God in him speaking to us through the prophets, 
through his son and now through his word. Do we understand that he didn't have to do that, that he does not have to do that? F.H. Henry says this way, the revelation of God is God's willful disclosure through which he forfeits his own personal privacy so that his creatures might know him that he willfully gives up his personal privacy so that his creatures might know him. Now, I know the majority of the room does not have kids. So let me just kind of give a forewarning to you. When you have kids, you're going to have that one kid, maybe if you're lucky, two kids, that just will not shut up. And they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk over and over and over again. I could see the bitter looks because you're having flashbacks of when your dad said, will you just stop for a second? I had that moment yesterday. And then when you just try to zone out and just ignore them, they go, hey, dad, did you hear what I said? Hey, dad. Hey, dad. I had this in the car last night. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. I'm like, hey, Brie, you've been gone for a month. Tag, you're it. Talk. I'm, I'm going to sit here and just drive. Because there's moments, I mean, I'm 95% extrovert. I'm as extrovert as you get, but there's moments where I just want to sit in silence. But God has willingly and knowingly forfeited that right for us because he desires to speak to us. Francis Schaeffer so famously says, he is there and he is not silent. That God is here and God is not silent. So just real quick, there's, there's two ideas of God speaking to us. There's the, the more broad one, the, the idea of general revelation, right? Psalm 19, one through two would put it this way, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So just being in nature, I mean, we have four kids, three of them played soccer yesterday, so I did not get to go deer hunting like I always did the rest of my life because I give up privileges So when you have kids, and that's just what you do. But uh, one of my favorite parts about deer hunting is just sitting there in the woods watching the sun come up, the sun go down, and marveling at the majestic view of God's handiwork. This is general revelation, being able to see God in nature, see God in his, what he's done but what Hebrews here, what he's talking about is not general revelation, it's special revelation. It's specific communication of God to his people, through his prophets, now through his son. And for us, fast forward, through his word. But this tiny house church was asking some hard questions. And as I'm reading these, think about your own heart. Did God know what was going on? If so, how could this be happening to them? Did he actually care? Only God could protect them, but where was he? Why did he now not answer? Why the silence of God? Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you have asked these same questions of yourself? As you're going through seasons, you've asked these same questions. Why the silence of God? And the preacher here was trying to clarify and bring hope in this apparent season of silence they found themselves in. And he's reminding them, look, church, God spoke through creation. God spoke through the law. God spoke through the prophets. For us, God's speaking through his word, but God shouted through Christ on the cross. 
that the loudest explanation of God's voice is Christ dying on the cross and being raised from the dead on the third day. So that's not just a prophet in the wilderness speaking. God is shouting his love, his affection, his mercy, and his grace for us. So God spoke through the prophets in many ways, in many wonders, but God shouting at us his love for us through Christ on the cross. So 30 years later, the preacher is saying, remember this, church. Do not lose heart, church. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we fall into these seasons of silence, the preacher is saying, listen, we know the old adage, action speaks louder than words. If you feel as though God is silent, church, look at Christ on the cross. And for us, if we feel as though God is silent, look at Christ on the cross and look at the word that he's so freely given us. That God is speaking to us and has spoken to us and will continue to speak to us. And that is not an entitled thing that we deserve. That is a good grace from God to us. But lastly, and again, I'm, I'm going to move quickly through this, just kind of set the scene for what we're going to see in this idea of Christology in the rest of the book of Hebrews. But look with me at verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Kent Hughes puts it this way, the grand theme of these verses is the supremacy of Christ as God's final spoken word. Christ is held up like a great jewel to the sunlight of God's revelation. So there are seven attributes here, and, and there's more, but there are seven main categories that in these last few moments, I just want us to hit as a precursor for what we're going to see and understand as we study Christ in the future. The first one we see is that Christ is the inheritor. Scripture said that he whom appointed heir of all things. So Psalm 2.8 would say, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession. This affirms the present and anticipates the future rule and reign of Christ. So in all that God has, he has now given to Christ. He has spoken loudly that Christ is the heir of all things, that he has inherited everything, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he is God, co-ruling, co-reigning with him. The next that we see is that he is the creator whom he made the universe. Now, one of the major themes here that we'll kind of tease out as we work through Hebrews is the Trinity is alive and well all through the book of Hebrews. I mean, you just can't read it and not understand it. Or not see it. You won't understand it. But see it. Because we think, when we think creator, what do we naturally think of? God the Father was the one that created everything. 
But here we see he who, whom he made the universe. John 1.3 would say, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. So him being Jesus. So he, he made everything without him, nothing was made. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the agent that created all things. So we see that Jesus is not only the inheritance of God, the heir of God, but he is the creator of all things. Number three, that he is the radiator. We see in verse two that the radiance of God's glory. So we see this splendor as our intense brightness. So you can go back to the New Testament. We see on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, where Jesus is just shown the glory and Mark 9, 3 says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them. And here's what we need to see, just to make sure that we understand, that Christ is not reflecting the glory of God to us. No, my friends, that is a heresy. God, Christ is not the moon, right, that, that does not produce any glory, any light within himself. He just reflects the glory of God. No, Christ is God. He is radiance of God's glory. Number four, we see that he's a representer. He's the exact representation of his being. I told you this was deep and weighty and theologically robust, right? So as he's the representer, it's, it's almost like the phrase of a coin. So you have a coin, you put it into a press, and you make the exact representation of a coin. And sometimes you put it in and it doesn't quite work, it doesn't come out right, you kind of throw that one away. But what he's saying, he's the exact representation. He is the perfect coin. There's nothing different between Jesus and God. And we see this clearly in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word which is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see that he's the exact representation of God. Next, we see that he is the sustainer. That he is sustaining all things by his powerful Word. The action speaks of continual organization and carrying forward the created order to a designed end. Colossians 1.17 clearly says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now for us, and for the church in Rome, this might have been the most comforting thing to them. That he is holding all things together. No one, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I highly doubt it, no one in here thrives in pain, in chaos, and unorder, and lack of control. I mean, that, that's just, maybe some of you artsy people, you, you kind of lean that way. But to have full-on anarchy, chaos, the world's falling apart, no one thrives in that environment. And so when the church at Rome heard that, that he's sustaining all things, that he's holding all these things together, how? By his word. And so we look back in the Gospels and we just marvel at the fact when Jesus says, hey, get up and walk. Get up and walk. We marvel at the fact when he walks and says, you're not allowed to be dead anymore, let's go. 
By his word, he sustains, he brings life to things. Number six, which will be the, one of the overarching major themes that we're going to see throughout the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is the purifier of our sins. This is the big one that we're going to see. This is why we spent the last four weeks in Leviticus to understand what they were doing to atone for their sins. We see this clearly in Leviticus 16. Um, even we understand Deuteronomy 24, the blood of the covenant. So, so the guys preached the last four weeks, teeing up this idea that here's what all that had to have been accomplished to forgive you from your sins, but here now, here now, Christ has purified. He has, been, he has become the spotless lamb for you. And at the end of all of this, he's the ruler, that he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now let me just kind of tease this out real quick as we start to wrap this up. We'll see this a lot in Hebrews 10, but, but Jesus as the high priest, in the Old Testament, the priests would never sit down. They had bells sewn into the garments, so if the bells stopped ringing in the holies of holies, oh, priest is dead. God smite him, it's over. So the priest was constantly walking, he was constantly moving around, these bells were constantly jiggling because the sin was never fully atoned for. He was constantly committing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people of God. So we see that the ultimate high priest, after he screams out on the cross, it is finished, it is done, sits. He now sits. And he's ruling and reigning. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore, God has great, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see just in these first three verses that this house church in Rome that has gone through persecution and sees martyrdom looming on the horizon, this preacher wastes no time getting to the most important thing, which is Christ. Christ is what you need. Christ is the better Moses. Christ is the better Abraham. Christ is the better prophet. Christ is what you need, church at Rome. This suffering, this persecution, this martyrdom, that at the end of your rope, don't look anywhere else, church. Look at Christ. In the same way as we're working through Hebrews, you need to start asking yourself this question. What am I running to to fix my problems? Where am I putting my hope into? Where am I hoping that God will speak to me? What, what, what situation am I trying to manufacture? What, what am I trying to do to rescue myself from this situation? Who do you say Christ is? Who do you say that Christ is? God has a plan. He has spoken his plan. And Jesus Christ is his plan. So let us pray. Um, Jesus, we're so thankful that we can pray to you, that we can speak to you as we just read several of your attributes and start to understand the power 
and the weight of your majesty and your glory. God, as we understand that you are the sustainer, that you are the ruler, that you have inherited all that God had, that you own it all, that you have saved us, you have purified us from our sins, that you have rescued us, that you have redeemed us. Father, the question now comes to our mind, why are we trying to do this on our own? Why are we in this season of suffering and hardship and hard times looking to ourselves as the author and perfecter of our faith and not looking to you? Let us wrestle with this question that that you posed to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And church, let us give an answer to that. Who is Christ? Not conceptually, not because we know the Sunday school answers, not because we went to VBS and we got the t-shirt and we know everything, but in our suffering, it'll be revealed to us who we think Christ is. In our hardships, it'll be revealed to us who we think Christ really is. And so we have only but two ways. We can continue to work in our own strength, wearing ourselves out. Or we can proclaim that Christ is all things, he owns all things, he controls all things, he rules all things, and we can rest in that. So Father, would you forgive us for when we try to control and do it all on our own? And this morning, would we repent from that and would we turn back to you? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Direct your mind to the Father that loves you, that cares for you, that's rejoicing over you, that delights in you, that he's a glad-hearted Father that's going to give you what you need. He's not out to get you. He's out to love you. But, but we don't pray that way. We don't think that way. For most of us, it's, I, just, I don't want to bother him with this. I don't want to, he's sitting in his easy chair. He's had a long day at work. I'm worried what happens if I walk in there and I say the wrong thing or I trip over my words, like he's just going to get mad and kick me out. And maybe I'm just preaching to myself. John 15, 9 puts it this way. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that, and that your joy may be full. So I've said these things, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
So what does it look like for us to not have anxiety? What does it look like for us to have a joy that no one can compete with, that you cannot get me down? I mean, you read all through Paul in the New Testament. It's incredible because you couldn't do anything to the brother. If you throw him in jail, he's going to convert all your guards to Jesus. And if you let him go, he's going to be screaming Jesus wherever he goes. You literally, I mean, he was shipwrecked. He was everything. He was beaten. You could not put Paul down. Why? Because he had the joy that wasn't going anywhere. Because he was connected to the Father. He remained, he abided to the Father of joy. So if we want to walk in joy, if we want to be untouchable by the world around us, I can tell you how it works. You abide, you remain, you hold steadfast to the Father of joy. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Romans 8. We'll, we'll end here. Because I just need us to see this for our eyes. What would it look like, church? What would it look like if we said, I'm in? I'm going to change the way that I view God to a joyful, glad-hearted Father that loves me, that cares for me, that provides for me. As Zephaniah would say, that rejoices over me. If I'm a son, if I'm a daughter of this God, what would my life look like? What would it be? I think Romans 8 just puts it perfectly. We're going to pick it up in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we would say. That if my God is a joyful, glad-hearted Father that's here to protect, take care of, provide for me, out of his joy, out of his perfection, that I can't do anything to earn his love, he's freely giving this to me, what would our attitude, what would our mindset be that if my God is for me, who can be against me? What are you going to do to me? Let's keep reading. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is crazy talk unless we fully comprehend the God of joy, the God of God-heartedness is for us. If we don't get that, then none of this makes sense. Verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything present or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what our lives would be marked by if we truly understand that God is a God of joy. That is where our strength would be rooted in if we understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we have a good, joyful, glad-hearted Father that delights in us. That nothing can separate us from Him. That our joy isn't, we don't have to play into His joy, that the joy is complete, the joy is full. We'd have this massive confidence in our God and our Father. But, But do we? 
Do we? I mean, are we the people of God that Nehemiah said, stop crying, go rejoice, because the joy of the Lord is your strength? Or are we still sitting in that moment? Are we still looking and we still praying to God like he's disappointed in us? Are we still praying to God like, man, I, I hope I say the right things or else? What is your view of God? Here's a question I've been asking myself this week. Maybe this would be uh, of advantage to you. In your lowest moment of your life, when you needed the most strength, when you could not depend on yourself anymore and you hit your knees in prayer, who were you praying to? A rigid, hard-nosed God or a loving, joyful Father who for His joy loves providing for His children? Now listen, I'm not saying, and please hear me, because we're teaching through a book. I'm not saying that repentance is not necessary. Daniel's going to cover that next week. But I'm saying if we don't understand the nature of God, we cannot repent. If we don't understand the character of God, the joy of God, the glad-heartedness of God, then we're repenting to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We're not actually turning to God. We're turning to our own moral successes. We're turning to our own strifes of energy, not to a loving Father that cares deeply for us. So as we wrap up, as we're going to go into a time of communion, here's the thought. Let's put ourselves in the mindset of the festival of booths. As we wrestle with, as we try to understand the God of joy, the God of God-heartedness, Here's, here's my two questions. Just like they were celebrating the crops, how God has blessed them in front of them today, how has God blessed you today? What, what has God done for you today in this season of harvest? How has he provided for you? How has he cared for you? How has he nurtured you? We've got to be honest about that. We don't worship God enough. And in the same way that, that he rescued, God rescued them out of slavery of Egypt. If you're a Christ follower in this room, God has rescued you from the slavery of death and sin and destruction. So we as Christians can clearly look back and say, man, look how God has saved me from this. Look how he's redeemed. I was, Ephesians 2 said, I'm walking straight to my death. There's nothing that I can do to earn salvation, but God has radically saved me out of that. So we can celebrate that, and then we can slow down and see the celebration of God around us right now, that he delights in us, that he cares for us. But, but what if you're not yet a believer? What if, what if you're wrestling with this? Because of what Christ did on the cross, us as believers, our, our sin has been covered. So when God looks at us, he can rejoice over us. He can celebrate us because he sees the perfection of his son. But if you've not yet surrendered your life to Christ, he doesn't. So this loving father must punish sin. He cannot be a just God, a just king if he doesn't. But he is a loving father that he wishes all men to come to repentance. So we've got to ask this question if you're not yet a believer. What is your view of God? 
Do you see him as a father that loves, delights, protects his children? And do you want to become a child? Do you want to be adopted into the family? What, what then is your view of God? So as we enter into a time of communion, if you're not yet a believer, I just ask you to pray and consider that and think through that. But if you are a believer, as we go to communion, I want us to wrestle through those two questions. How has God blessed you today? And has, when's the last time you worshiped God for how far he's brought you? That you are a sinner and deserving death, and he has radically saved you and brought you into the fold. Not to complete his joy. His joy was already complete. But because of his joy, because of his God-heartedness, he brought you in. So I'm going to pray for us, and we can consider these two questions as we go into communion. Let's pray. Father, we are conflicted. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we have had a different image of you than, than who you really are. Father, because for most of us, we, we might not see you as a joyful, glad-hearted Lord. We might not see you as the Father that delights in us as your sons and daughters. We might see you as following after us closely, waiting for us to trip up so that you can punish us. We may see you as a God that your love for us is determined on our performance. That if we're doing good and right things, you're pleased with us. But the moment we slip up and fail, you're mad at us. Father, we see you as a glad-hearted, joyful father that loves to give, give, give good gifts to his children, that delights in, that loves, that is pleased, that, that doesn't need us to placate to him, that doesn't need us to make God feel better about himself that you are already perfect, you're already joyful, you're already glad. You need nothing from us. You just delight in us. And as we become more and more excited about that God, the one that loves us, that cares for us, that gladly listens to us, that loves us no matter what, then the natural byproduct of that is worship. The natural byproduct of that is confidence in you. The natural byproduct of that is strength. That we have the strength to be obedient. That we have the strength to persevere. That we have the strength to be untouchable to the world around us because our Father loves us. And He's pleased with us. And there's nothing else we have to do. And from that freedom comes a willingly to obedience. Comes a willfulness to perseverance. Comes a willfulness to make disciples that the Christian life is true, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He frees us to walk in that obedience. So church, as we take communion this morning, that, that's my question. How, how do we view God? Because the Jewish people in Nehemiah were freed up to rejoice, to celebrate 
to eat good food with good company, to let their hair down, to relax because their God is pleased with them. Do we feel the same way? So church, when, when you're ready, communion is open. You can go consider. We can celebrate that God has t- saved us from slavery, from sin, and now we are counted as sons and daughters to him. And let that stir our affections and our worship for the Lord this morning. So whenever you're ready, church, communion is open. The elders will be over there to pray with you and We'll continue in worship and celebration.